So as I mentioned, uh, we are in this series called Undone, where we're looking at vices and virtues. And at the base of this, we're really taking a look at uh, this idea of what we do take us places. Our actions take us places, whether we do good, bad, however we decide to live, whatever decisions we make, whatever actions we take, they take us places over time. And this series is a very practical and helpful series, right? It's the beginning of the year, it's January. A lot of us are thinking about things like that, like resolutions and life and all these things. And so it's very practical and helpful, but this is not a self-help series. I think we want to be careful in that because of its placement in that this, though again, practical, it really is a thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven series. Uh, we have been taking a look over this last year of what it looks like for the kingdom of heaven to come, that Jesus talked often about his kingdom. He talked about it coming, that it is near, that it is here, that it is still to come. He talked about it in mysterious ways. He talked about it in practical ways, but he talked about the kingdom often. The kingdom was important to him, this new way of living, this new mode of life, this new intentional gathering of people to live this out was very important to him. And he talks about it because it's important because whether we participate or not, his kingdom is coming. And one of the things we identified last year that it is coming, his work is coming, and we have this opportunity to either be a part of it, to be a part of that flow, to be able to usher it in, or we have an opportunity to hinder it as well. Uh, we have opportunities. He's going to continue to do it, but we have personal opportunities in the midst of it to reflect that, to live into that. So there is a very practical and helpful element to the series because if we do good, if we live the virtues, right, there will be good and we will reap good out of that, though in, if we live in the vices, if we live in these unhelpful decisions, we will live in the consequences of those stories. And so this series can be very helpful. If you are not yet a believer in Jesus, if you are not yet following him, if you were to hear this series and, and put these into practice, you would find it very helpful. But our goal in this series is that as we look at these virtues and vices and where they take us in life, that we will not simply do better, that it won't just be behavior modification, but that we'll have a better picture of the kingdom impact our everyday selves can have on the world around us. That's the hope in this series. So what may start with very practical steps and behavior modification in some of those ways will actually lead into a deeper trust and following of Jesus throughout the year and an understanding of his kingdom coming. So last week we talked about the vice of sloth. And this week's virtue is diligence. Again, we'll be talking about these in pairs. They will line up sloth and diligence. In the summary of last week, the summary of sloth at the very base of it was don't be lazy. Uh, when we're slothful, when we are lazy, um, it's because we lack vision or, the, or we lack the rest that we need. We identify those as the pieces of why we slip into laziness instead of rest. And so sloth, laziness, doesn't actually give us the rest we need. It in fact robs us of the rest that we need when we slip into that. And today, as we talk about diligence, though it's the opposite of sloth, it is not the antidote to sloth. We identified the antidote, the fix for sloth, the thing that solves it at its base level is Sabbath, it is holy rest. It's taking intentional time of recognizing our limits, that we were given our limits by a loving creator who created us with limits. He didn't create us with limitless energy and abilities. In fact, he modeled it out in his own creation stories of the seventh day of rest. And he modeled the Sabbath behavior and gave us our innate need for it as well. And so this idea of Sabbath being the antidote of, of actually curing the thing, of giving us the energy we need. And it was so encouraging as the week went on, like people calling me, texting me, sending me stories about putting Sabbath into practice. I had a text uh, later that day on Sunday from a, a guy who told me he took a nap 
right? He took a three hour nap, which is like, if you know this guy, like I was waiting for like a three minute nap because he's like a go-getter, right? And he was just saying his body was so depleted. He had planned to do all this stuff. And I love to hear you that oftentimes our most holy rest is a nap, right? Just recognizing that our body has limits in it and that we need to rest. And I started getting emails of people during the week. And I noticed even in our own family, I thought, well, if I'm preaching about it, we should probably put it into practice, right? Um, and so we spent that day at home. And, and one of the things for me that's restful is I like cooking. So we made a big dinner that night. We had a, a dinner around the table together, a big fun meals. We were getting, getting ready to go back into school, a celebration of the end of the Christmas break. We played games at the table. And it was just one of those ways we felt recharged heading into a weekend. It was so restful and nice to be able to do that. And then I just noticed our pace as a family slowing down. And I heard a number of stories of that, this idea that we can still do things, but it's not work. This idea of, of resting in really intentional ways and being renewed together. But one of the things I have found, I think as I've reflected on it a bit this week and over these last weeks, um, when we're thinking about diligence, I, I often find that I'll be diligent in one area to compensate for laziness in another area. Right, you know, to try to fix the spinning plates. Maybe if I work super hard over here, it'll make up for the thing that's not going well over here. And in some of those places, I identify that right at home. If I'm being, uh, if things are hard at home, like maybe marriage is hard, kids are hard, things aren't going well there, or something in that, I will take extra time at work. I'll be super diligent about my job and I'll stay late. I'll work extra hard, thinking that'll make up for this other thing that's happening over there, or maybe maybe if I'm lazy in my body, I'm not eating the way I should or exercising the way I should, doing the things that it needs, resting in those ways, I'll make up for it by being really diligent somewhere else. Like maybe I'll take on a project at home, right? I'll organize the garage. So in case you're wondering if you look at my garage, it looks really good right now, probably need to get to the gym. Um, if you're lazy, if I find myself lazy in my friendships, what's really happening is I'm being alone. And so I'll be really diligent in my reading, right? Or my, my alone time. Uh, I'll, I'll work on fixing the feeling that's there because it's feeling right. I feel out of whack. I feel like things are not working right. Uh, but I won't actually address the issue. I won't address the deeper issue that is needed there of the rest of the Sabbath, of this holy rest that's there. But doing good in one area doesn't actually cancel out the laziness in the other, right? They just kind of keep working against each other, though it might be helpful in the one area they don't cancel each other out. So this week, uh, as we talk about diligence, uh, it could be summed up as work hard. If last week was don't be lazy, you could really sum up diligence as work hard. And, and when I think about that, when I think about working hard, um, I think about patterns established by my family, right? I think a lot of us, when we think about working hard, it's often been modeled by the generations ahead of us. I, when I think about working hard, I think about my dad, right? He, he's a teacher, 40 years in middle school, and every day he was up out the door, first one in the school, last one home, was diligent about his work. He, he went and he did a good job. He was like, to this day, friends of mine that I'll meet, it's his favorite teacher because he would spend every day doing a good job. He would take great papers on the weekend so he's ready to go Monday morning. When we'd go on vacations over the summer, he'd always visit the teacher resource center to be able to gather materials so that he could do a good job. And I've always been jealous. I didn't get to have him. He was also very careful about nepotism, right? So I would have the other teacher who was, I'm sure she was fine, but she wasn't my dad. Like I still hear, hear stories about him doing these fun things in class, how good of a teacher he was. He was diligent, that hard 
work ethic. And I think he probably learned that from my grandfather, right? My grandfather owned a carpet business. And, and to, to live my life growing up, I realized how rare this was. But my parents and I lived in a house on the corner, which was my grandparents' house before. Next door were my great-grandparents who started the carpet business. And my grandparents' carpet business was in the end. And all the family worked there from time to time. So I'd always see my grandfather pretty much every day. And he was a hard worker. He was always at work. He was there sun up to sundown, right? And, and, and carpet work, if you've ever been in flooring, um, is hard work. You know, running a business is hard on its own level. And those of you who've run businesses, you know how much time and effort. But then there's the manual side also. I, I think my grandfather actually probably made me work a couple of times in the summer so that I would not get into that line of work, like ripping out carpet and tile from schools. I was not built for that. And then you'd see these guys, I mean, these guys were pros at it, just working so hard. So I think when I got my first job, I wanted to like prove it a little bit, right? I wanted like a hard job. I kind of remember there being some job offers, like maybe you could work in the lawyer's office this summer, which pays well, but you're shuffling papers, which has been a very good job. And in hindsight, probably should have taken it. But instead, my friend's dad bought a ceramics factory. And I thought, hey, that sounds like a fun job. Uh, and so I took my first job. It was, you know, like in between junior year, um, had gotten my first car, uh, my Hyundai Excel, uh, which I quickly realized uh, had windows that did not roll down. Um, I lived on the west coast of Florida. So most days were about 98 degrees with about 1,098% humidity. Um, and so as you would drive in the work, right, the windows didn't come down. Oh, did I not mention the AC also didn't work in said car? And so you'd start the day hot. Right, and so it's just hot, you're going to work, and then it'd go to the ceramics factory. And my job was packaging boxes. So where I sat was by the open door of the steel building, and it was about 105 degrees where I was with my little thermometer. Um, so I would tape the boxes up, I'd put the things that we made in there, package them with all the packing peanuts. Every now and again, we'd go work in the kiln room, which was like 130 degrees where they're firing all the ceramics and putting it together. It was hard work, and it was good work, right? It was work with our hands, and I think it satisfied that desire. And probably right now you're thinking, hey, um, did you happen to bring the item that you made while you were there? Oh, well, yes, I did. <laughs> if you happen to be in the mid-90s or early 90s shopping at Bell's, Bell Clinsey's, or Moss Brothers, maybe you came home with one of these beauties. <laughs> um, or if you ever come to my house, maybe you've had chips and salsa and the sombrero. Um, <laughs> We made these every day and we must have gotten an order for, I don't know, 10 million of these from Bells back then. Cause every day we made and fired and packed and shipped sombreros. I got this from my mom a couple years ago. So I'm like, I've got to have this thing. And she kept it. The great thing about you parents who keep everything for us, she kept it. And so now this is here. So we made these all day long, yummy nacho sombreros. You're welcome. But when I think about work, there's, there's, there's more to work than just what we do with our hands, right? I think it can become a pretty narrow definition when we think of work as just our job, uh, though it's an important part of it, but work encompasses all of our life. And so I think for today, as we talk about work, as we talk about this, it'd be helpful to have a working definition of work. And here's kind of what we've come up with. It's to add value. To work is to add value. And we were created from the beginning of time to work. When you go back in the story of Genesis, when you look at it, we were created to work. Even uh, when we were, you know, in living in the garden, there was work given to us and work got harder in the fall, but work was always something we were created for. And whether that's a vocational job or, or work with our hands or work anywhere, we were created to add value to the world around that. And we can do that anywhere. We can do that in any job, e even really tough and miserable jobs. Many of us have had those in times, right? Or a job that started good and went bad, but we can still add value there. But I think this idea of adding value is helpful because it encompasses more than just a vocational job. For many of us, uh, our jobs don't look all that, or maybe you're not in a season where you do that, but you're created to work. 
You've still been created to add value. Because I, mean, I, I think when we think about that idea of adding value, it encompasses so much. If you're full-time parenting, right, you're adding incredible value to your families as you spend time with them, as you bring your kids up, as you're taking care of the things that need to be taken care of. If, if you're in college, right, that's your work. If you're in school, that's your work to do good work, to learn, to sink yourself into it. And you can add value around that, both to yourself and to the world around you. If you're in retirement, or as many of you have decided to call it rewirement, um, I love that. Um, you add value because you've taken these years of experience. You get to pour into the next generation. You have this freedom to do things. Uh, for those of you who are, are prayer warriors here at church or serve in really unique ways, you add value in such incredible ways. We get to have an opportunity to add value in so many ways. I mean, take away that traditional job label. I think it opens up this picture of how we can add value in all of these different areas of our life. And then today, as we talk about diligence, um, it, it conjures up an image that's bigger than just work. Uh, though work is a part of it, work is adding value. Diligence becomes this overarching thing. It has this connotation uh, of consistent effort over time. Um, repeated steps in the same direction, consistently working hard, taking good steps, making good decisions time and time again. But again, diligence is bigger than just consistently because you could be consistently lazy, but not be considered to be diligent, right? Uh, when we say diligence, it, it brings up a different picture. I, I love that last week, one of the words used for laziness was sluggard. And even when you say that, even the mouthfeel of sluggard feels like lazy and feels like it encompasses that. And there's something I think also in diligence. When you say diligence, when you think diligence, it brings about a different picture. So it's more than just being consistently anything. Because you could also be consistently, like a, a consistently good bank robber, right? You could be consistent in your planning. I watch Catch Me If You Can. It takes a lot of work to be on the run. But we probably don't think of bank robbers as diligent, right? It, it has a more noble picture than that. Uh, diligence brings to mind someone who is consistent in doing something good or bringing value over and over and over again in their life. And I think for me, one of the pictures I get of diligence is farming. For some reason, when I picture farming, that idea of getting up every day and doing the right work or doing the right steps, of tending the soil, of taking out the, the weeds, uh, of fertilizing at the right time, of, of doing all these things over and over and over again to produce a good crop. So I think a good working definition as we talk about diligence today is this idea of habitually adding value. So if work is adding value, diligence is consistently adding value time and time again. And habits are a big deal. They've always been, right? They, we've, we talk about habits a lot, but for right now, I feel like they've encapsulated a new realm in learning, right? If you listen to podcasts, if you look at a lot of the studies, leadership books, habits are a big thing. I think probably because we've had more years to be able to study them, there's been more resources devoted to them. And habits are conscious behaviors that are repeated over time that become unconscious. They're conscious behaviors repeated over time that become unconscious. You keep doing them so often that they become just ingrained in what you do. They become part of your wiring. But the things that we keep learning about habits is they can change over time, right? Just because you consistently do something doesn't mean you have to continue consistently doing them. You can break habits, you can start habits, but it's a lot of work. Once a habit's ingrained, it, it takes a lot of work to shift it over time. And I think one of the things that we talk about diligence and adding value is that the practice of adding value can become a habit, that we can consistently add value over time unconsciously. It can become a habit in our life. And diligence is that idea of this unconscious behavior, adding value time and time and time again. I think that people who are known as diligent are known as diligent because they are diligent time and time again, right? It's this repeated behavior. You see them add value 
over and over and over again. I think if you just close your eyes and you picture diligence, you'll picture that person that is just consistently leaving it, living it out. And oftentimes they're not the bright, shining, you know, upfront stars. They're oftentimes there's people who just continue to work hard. Maybe you picture a grandparent, right? Or there's just somebody who's been so consistent in your life. They're diligent. They're diligent in your pursuit of you. Maybe their love of you. Maybe the work that they do time and time again. So what does God have to say about diligence? What does God have to say about this virtue, right? We've kind of got these working models and definitions in here. Throughout the series, as we take a look at the virtues, as the virtuous side of all this, we're gonna be taking a look at Jesus and how he lived out this virtuous life. How did he model it out? Because Jesus, Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. Right, God is, is at a distance, God is unknowable, but Jesus is the embodiment of God. Oftentimes he's called God with skin on. We get to see him take actual physical steps in the world, how God would live it out in real life on this planet earth and the life that we live in, all the different things that we realize Jesus has walked through all of them. He's been through shame and guilt and fear. He's been through all of the things he's been hurled at. I mean, all of the things that we have experienced, he's experienced and he continues to show what it looks like lived in real life. So we get to see what a godly life lived looks like on earth through his life. And when we look at Jesus, we get a picture of someone who's very consistent. I think when you think of Jesus, that you would put diligence high on the list of how Jesus would be characterized as a person. He knew what he was up to. He knew where he was going at all times. He had a clear picture of the path he was taking and continued to take repeated steps day after day towards a certain place. But at the same time, uh, Jesus didn't have a vocation that we know of. When we look at his ministry in the gospels, it captures the three years of his life, as well as some of his early life, but it doesn't give a clear picture that he had a vocation, a job that he went to in the, on, on a regular basis. No, it's, it's possible, it's not captured. And, and we would surmise that based on his upbringing, his father was a carpenter. And the tradition of the time would say that he would have been raised as an apprentice in carpentry, he would have learned it, but it never says directly that he was in the job of carpentry or that he had any particular job other than the ministry he was doing. Yet, he exemplifies diligence time and time again, adding value, taking steps, consistent actions throughout his life. So I think this idea of diligence becomes either further separated from a vocational job when we take a look at his life. So it expands the definition to all of our life. And so we come today to John chapter six. And I would highly encourage you, we're just gonna be taking a couple, uh, a look at a couple of verses that are here in his teaching. But if you get a chance later today, please, please take, read John chapter six. There is so much happening in this passage. There is so much happening before he teaches. Jesus is teaching the large crowds. Just thousands of people have gathered because they've heard about him. They wanna know what he's saying. Uh, we see him feed 5,000 people because they're hungry, he, he, but he does a miracle, right? Takes these small offering of fish and loaves and brings in extra food at the end. So there's a miracle there. He goes away onto the lake. His disciples come walk out onto the lake to the boat. So we see Jesus walking on water again, another miracle. And then the crowds gather back with him again because they wanna hear what he has to say. And in John chapter six, verse 38, which is on your bulletins, he says this. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. I've come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus had work to do. He had a job in front of him. He had value to add, and he was diligent in this habit of adding value in all areas of his life. He had come down to do his father's work. He had a clear path, and he was diligent in it. 
Um, last week, um, I mentioned the second law of thermodynamics, and we talked about entropy, that, that, that systems are created and there is disorder that happens, that there is loss in the midst of these symptoms. And John Parker and I have actually been working on this sermon series together. It's been really fun. John Parker's our lead pastor. And, uh, you know, when we come and we decide to bring up physics, it's always a risky thing because though I love science, I am no expert in science, especially in physics. And we have many people at Church at RC who are always like, how am I going to be corrected on this one, right? I have gotten this one all wrong. And so we kind of went into the the week wondering when we were going to get the email uh, from our nuclear physicists and things like this. And so John was saying, we've got a friend at work who's incredibly bright. Um, and, and then her sister is like her, but even smarter. Like she's a literal rocket scientist at NASA, makes things and nanoparticles that go into space, things we don't even fully understand. And he said he was in his office and, and uh, the one who works with us came into and said, hey, I want to talk to you about your uh, second law of thermodynamics. And he's like, oh boy. Yeah, we're going to have a correction, right? We're going to have to issue some sort of rebuttal in the next week of our sermons to fix all of this. And she did mention that they're meant to work together. When you talk about it, you're supposed to talk about all the laws kind of working together. But she said this, that um, afterwards, uh, her and her sister went out for pizza. We're talking about this idea of entropy, that, that this idea that entropy can never decrease over time, that, that, that there is there. But as they were talking, and I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for this conversation, because as they're eating pizza and talking about these laws of thermodynamics, they said there's one caveat, there is one exemption to entropy, and it is this, that in a perfectly closed system where there is no free or wasted energy, where there is a system that needs or wastes nothing, there's not entropy. And as they were talking about it, there are no known examples of this system. There are no perfectly closed systems, but they identified one, Jesus. Jesus was a perfectly closed system. He needed nothing, and he wasted nothing. When he came, he needed nothing from us, and he was true to his purpose in everything he did. And I thought that was such an incredible picture of what that looks like. Jesus was the perfect model. He was the perfect embodiment. And when we look at these arenas of Jesus's life lived out where diligence is played out, we get to see it, and it's all here in this passage. We see him teaching crowds. We see him using his words to share life with those around him. We see him spend time in relationships with people that matter, right? He had his 12. He spends time with his disciples as well as to the crowds. And we see it in his actions as he cared for the needs of those around him. He fed them. He watched out for them. And though there are many arenas that we can look in Jesus' life, and as you do, you will see consistency throughout them. You'll see diligence played out. There are three that I think are very helpful for us as we look at it because he consistently added value and diligence in these three areas in his words, in his relationships, and in his actions. I think when we think about this diligence idea of consistently adding value over time, it's more important to think about diligence in our words, in our relationships, in our actions, and where they actually happen, right? I think sometimes we can get so caught up in thinking about diligence, like if I'm just diligent in my job, it'll all work out, right? And we think about it maybe in this, or maybe if I'm just diligent in school, and we think about them in these narrow areas where we live a lot of our lives, but diligence comes to play out in all of our lives. And we think about our words, and our relationships and our actions, it affects every area of our life, every environment. God has the opportunity to be transformative in them. Uh, as Chad mentioned earlier, um, at the beginning of the year as a staff, we take time away to come up with an idea of what does holiness look like in our life? What does it look like to pursue God well in our life? And we think it's really important. We think it's important in all of our areas of life, right? And, and I, I know in, in past parts of my life might have had that, whether You'd call that disciplines or a rule of life, or maybe you have a life plan. There's some areas where you're very, you know, you have goals in your life, you set them out. And so as a staff, one of the things we do, we say, we think this is so important that the work you're doing is so important and all of the work that everybody does is important. 
But in this work of church, we think, you know, we need to take time to be very diligent about it, to have a plan for what does it look like to pursue God through the year so that we can offer our best, that we can offer our best in our life. But it's more than just our work life. I remember the first time I did this about eight years ago, the sheet was almost so daunting to work through because it encapsulated our workout life, our friend life, our home life. What friends do I need? What friends am I pouring into? Who am I reaching out to? Um, what is my work? What do I need in my personal spiritual life? Right? It was broken down and it was so many layers. And I remember the first time looking at it thinking like, I, I, I'm going to have a 50 point thing that I'm going to fail at 49 of. And right, because it's just so many areas. But what I've come to appreciate over time and being able to look at it is, is our holiness, our pursuit of God, our, our diligence should happen in every area of our life because every area matters. It matters more than just our job, though, that's important. It matters more than just our home, though, that's important. It's every area of our life. Our words and our actions and our relationships happen in every area of our life. And we need to add value. We need to be diligent in all of them because everyday diligence matters, right? It matters how I use my words, Right? Our words are powerful. We may say sticks and stones break bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie, right? That is a lie. As Steve Brown would say, straight from the pits of hell. Right? Our words have the power to bring life or to destroy life. And I mean, if I'm healthy and if I'm in a good place, if I'm rested and refreshed, my words can bring life. They can bring encouragement. And when I'm unhealthy or I'm exhausted, they can be negative and sarcastic and hurtful. Right? Words matter. My relationships matter. Right? Am I pursuing my kids well, my wife, my friends, my coworkers? Am I adding value to them? Am I bringing them my best? Or is everybody just getting the leftovers of what's left in my life? Am I, am I just working life so hard that I'm just putting it away and it is just a mess and all you're getting are the crumbs, right? It matters. What about, what about in our actions, right? Am I tending to the needs around me? Am I caring for those in my home, my church? my neighbors, my work, or, or am I too depleted to give anything? I have just nothing left to give at the end. And so we come up with these plans, right? And we are diligent and we, and we are so, uh, we know they matter. But what we bump up to, what I bump up to every time, every time in this is we look at diligence, we look at working hard and adding value continually over again. The big problem we have when we add Jesus as our example and we hold him up as the perfect example, is the reality is you and I are not Jesus. And if that's the first time you've realized that, welcome to my reality, right? We're not Jesus. But the beautiful thing is, is Jesus knows this, right? Jesus had the world to save. Jesus carried the weight of the world on his shoulders throughout his whole life. And I can barely make it through the day without disappointing someone, even if that someone's myself. Because we need, we waste, we fail. And, and I think if we're really honest, we wonder what value we could possibly bring when there's so little value that we even feel in ourselves. Because how often do our words fail? How often do our relationships suffer? How often do our actions come up short, even with the best plans and the best intentions? Last week, I mentioned that we're created beings broken by sin, right? We talk about that on a regular basis, that we live in the effects of the brokenness of the fall. And we have this irresistible proclivity towards vices, but we're actually created for virtue. In the beginning, we were created perfectly in the image of God and we're created to bring good into the world, but we often lead towards our vices. And it has been said that every sin is the wrong response to a God-given desire or need. Every sin at its heart is a tantalizing but insufficient alternative to a God-given desire that's been created in us. And sloth... This idea of laziness that we talked about last week is the insufficient response to our created need and desire for rest. We settle for it. We settle for laziness instead of rest. 
And the need that we're addressing this week as we talk about diligence is that we have a deep and innate need to add value. We were created to add value. From the beginning of time, God placed us here to work, to add value to the world. But our impulse, our impulse is to prove that we have value. Right? We were created to have value, but our impulse is to prove they have a value. And it becomes a very subtle shift, but it's one that damages everything. Because if diligence is consistently adding value over time, then the opposite is a need to prove our value. It's the lesser version of the need that we were created with. And when we work hard to prove our value, we, we do two things. We either give up because it's too hard and we fail, or, or we just double down and we grind it out and we end up back in the place where we're unhealthy again and, and we slip back in the laziness. But the good news, the incredible news in all of it is that Jesus knows we're not him. Right? This comes as no surprise to the creator. Jesus is the one who spoke everything into existence. Jesus is the Logos. He is the word. He is the creator. He spoke all of it into life. He knows who we are. He knows how we're wired. And that's why he came. He did not come on a bait and switch mission where he was sent into the world without knowing what he was doing. He knew he was coming because we needed him. Earlier, earlier in the same passage in John chapter six, when he was teaching, <laughs> Um, the crowd asked Jesus a really important question. They said, okay, we hear all this. We've seen your working. What should we then do? What, what is our job? What then does God require of us? How do we live this life out? What should we be diligent about? And Jesus answers them this way, John chapter six, verses 27 through 29. He says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Jesus is telling him, believe in me. I'm the one God has sent. I've come on this mission. Believe in me. That is your work to do. And when we settle for the other side of diligence, when we settle for proving our worth, we wear ourselves out. But Jesus says our job isn't to prove our worth. Our job is to believe. It's to believe in the one that the Father sent. It's to believe it, that it is his work that gives us value. Jesus, the perfect closed system that needed nothing and wasted nothing, yet gave everything. It's his work that gives us value. And the question I hope that you come to, that I come to you in the midst of all this is what would happen? What would happen if we really believe that? What would happen if I really truly believed it to the core of my bones that, that my value comes from Jesus himself, from the work he has done, from the value that God has placed upon me rather than the worth that I try to prove on a daily basis? What would that mean for my words? What would that mean in my relationship? What would that mean in my actions? What would that mean in my reality if I truly lived in the reality that my worth and my value comes from Christ alone? If we didn't have to prove to the world or our family or our job or all these places that we are worth it? What if we really believed and lived out of our gut sense, this reality that we are created by the one, the one who sent his son to give his life that we could have life? What if our value came from that fact? What if we really believe that the Father loved us so much that he sent his only son for us to give us life and that we don't have to live in the guilt of that or in the shame of that, but that we get to live in the life of that, the value of that, the joy of that, the stark reality of that? What if our life came from that? 
Because in verse 40, it's exactly what he says. Jesus says, for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up on the last day. Eternal life. Believe in me and you will have life. Can I really believe that I'm that valued? Right? That Jesus lived the life that I should have lived perfectly so that I could be in right relationship with him. Can I really believe that I'm valued that much? Um, as we work on these personal holiness plans with our staff, one of the things we've introduced over the years is going to a retreat center and spending some day, time of the day in silence. It's been a helpful way to center the year. We go to Canterbury Retreat Center, which is out in Oviedo. It's one of these incredible places. If you've ever been, you know, but it's like right in the middle of some of the busiest development around. Yet you pull in and it's like you've stepped into another world. There's a lake and it's just quiet. You kind of, it really is a retreat center. But around the lake is a path, and it's a path that's lovely to walk. It's in the trees. But on that path, there are the Stations of the Cross. And some of you may be familiar with Stations of the Cross. They're graphical depictions of the path that Jesus takes from the time he's arrested until the time he's on the cross. And you you may experience them in different ways. If you've been around, you'll see them at retreat centers, maybe depicted in art. Maybe you've been at a place where they're there. But as you walk it, you can kind of follow these pictures. And on years, I've taken time to do that. And years, I've run by, which is usually a symbol that things maybe should slow down a bit, right? But as you walk it, you realize a couple of things. One is that your actual physical steps take you somewhere, right? As you're walking, your steps are taking you around the lake. But if you walk and if you take in the pictures of the cross, of these stations that lead him to the cross, you realize Jesus' steps took him somewhere. It took him through the shame, and the pain, and the humiliation that led to the cross so that you and I could have life. His steps, his diligence, his day-after-day decisions took him somewhere. And if you take the time to breathe it in, you you realize that I'm that valued and that you're that valued, that Jesus went into it eyes wide open. Again, this wasn't a mission he was sent on without his knowledge. He knew where he was going. And day after day, he told his disciples, told his followers, this is where he was leading. Nobody believed him, right? They thought he was going to be a king. Yet he kept saying, no, I, I know where this is going. It's going to a hard place but it's a place that's worth it because you're worth it. Yeah, you and I can only add value to the extent that we recognize that we're valued, right? If our job is to add value, the only way that we're going to be able to add value to those around us in our words, relationships, our actions in our life is to recognize that we have value. Otherwise, we just get stuck trying to prove our own worth time and time again. But, but if I dare to recognize that truth, if I dare to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and therefore I matter as much as he says that I matter, then that should change my life. It should change your life, right? If we really step into that reality, if we really take that in, it should change everything. And it can change everything. And it will change everything as we step into it. It should change what diligence looks like and it changes what our work looks like and it changes what happens in our life, what our lives look like. Because we're no longer grasping for meaning, right? We have that question at the core of us. What is the meaning of our life? What, what should we be doing because it's about living in the meaning that's been assigned by our creator. He's already given us the value we need. We don't have to go searching for it. It's his value that's placed upon us. And if we can live out of that, it changes. My job, your job is to believe. And it takes as much diligence to believe that as it does anything else in life. Because the world will continue to tell you and it continues to tell me that I need to prove my worth that I need to live up to the person next to me, that I need to keep up with the Joneses, that I need to do all the things, that I, I need to do everything else and then some. And maybe as a Christian, maybe it even feels like we have to do more than others, right? To be able to live into it because we've got this title placed upon us and we want to live lives that are examples and we want to earn it instead of just pursue it and reflect it. 
but I no longer have to offer up to God what I think he needs for me, right? I no longer have to live in that false reality, but instead I can receive the value that he's already given to me and live it out. And there's no point in my life that I have more vision or more fulfillment or more focus than when I recognize that my value comes from Christ alone. Every other time I settle for a lesser vision, every other time. And when we talk about having the rest and vision to live a fulfilled life, that vision doesn't come from my own willpower. It doesn't come from mustering it up on my own. That vision is fueled by the value that I have in Christ. So my encouragement as we draw to a close this morning is to not get busy getting busy, right? That's some of our natural instincts. And when we hear diligence and we hear work hard, that can be our first instincts. Let's just get busy, right? Let's just dig into it and do all these things. My encouragement would be to take time and to reflect on our one job. And our one job is the, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. And when we believe that, it changes everything. When we believe that, we recognize that we are unbelievably valuable and only then can we add value to the world around us. Let's pray. God, you assign value to us that we can't even understand. God, our value is the life of your son. Our value is that you are willing to give up your closest relationship for us. That you knew how we were wired, that you created us, that you know our inmost hearts and our longings and our desires. And you have such great desire for us. And you knew it was broken through all the different steps of our life. And God, you came and sent your son to give us a way back to you. That's how much we're valued. God, and if we could realize that if we can have that rekindled or brought to us for the first time, our life can change. I mean, we've, many of us have experienced that. And sometimes it's seasonal, but God, if we could live every day in the reality and the knowledge of that, if we could actually have our words and our life and our reflections and our actions reflect that our value comes from you alone, if we were so rested and so knowledgeable about your care for us, the world would look different because we'd be able to bring words of life and relationships that matter and actions that heal. And we would be able to bring such hope to a world that needs hope. And our lives would be so different. They'd be wired so closely to yours. God, I know that's your desire for us. So God, help us. Help us to remember that. Help us to do our one job to believe in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.